By being in the same room as that machine, the kids became consenting adults. And this is 2012. Who still has answering machines in this day and age? In my lifetime, I've made over 100,000 phone calls, and maybe 1,000 of them are obscene. It's a very small percentage. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome along to another Edge of Your Seat thrill ride of an episode of Have You Seen This? First of all, massive thanks to Tristian for stepping up at short notice on the last episode and doing a fabulous job. And as for you, Pear, I hope you're ready for this week. <laughs> After listening to the intro to last week's show, I was a little unsure how to start this episode. Having seen Bear on Amazon Prime, I had no idea Brink could actually act. But as life imitates art, his acting is far better when you can't actually see him. Paul, how are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good, mate. But hey, look, you know, you snooze, you lose. You weren't there. It was an easy shot. Fair enough. I've only got myself to blame. And joining us, as always, a man that needs no introduction. Oh. So, another spectacular episode... <laughs> That's a bit unfair, mate. Come on. I like the way Breen was making it sound like podcast making is like some sort of war. You weren't there, man. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Good to see you again, Hammond. I can't say I missed your cryptic intros, though. They're, they're, they're going to get better. I've got a little bank of them now. I've, I've had time. I don't think that was actually a quote. It's from my personal memoirs. <laughs> so another spectacular episode brings another spectacular guest. You've got a front row seat as you witness the three of us playing career roulette by inviting a guest along who could literally pull the trigger on us at any time. But I must admit, it's reassuring to have a guest on that is likely going to say fuck before any of us get round to it. Managing Director of Picture Cinemas, Claire Bins. Claire, thanks for joining us. How are you? A pleasure. I'm very excited. I'm going to watch my language today, though. You know, I'm aware that I've got a, a terrible reputation, but... Uh... I'm going to try and control it. <laughs> Don't need to be careful, it's all good. So we ended episode 12 with a question, which means we start this episode with a question. And Breen, it's got the reputation now of, of being fairly easy. So I've got lots of shout outs for correct answers. Aidan McCaffrey via Aidan McComedy on Twitter. Uh, make sure you check him out. Actually, he's a very funny dude. And the movie news pedanza is also great. Tristian via Facebook, got it right. Kat Mercer and Drummer to Chris on Instagram, also right. And John Jackson had a very good guess with Forrest Gump, but he admitted he pulled a Breen and Googled it. So the question is, for which film did Tom Hanks receive his first Oscar nomination? Ben, Claire, any guesses? I've just seen the answers from everyone sending them in, so I, I've, I'm oh. ruling myself out because I don't want to cheat, unlike Breen. I'm ruling myself out because I was looking up Tom Hanks just the <laughs> other day for something to do with Oscars, so I, I don't oh, want to I give see. it away. Fair enough. Well, I, I knew this, and the answer is big. Is that right, Paul? It is indeed. Nice. Yes. So lots of right answers. So yeah, first Oscar nomination for Big and his first wins for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump in consecutive years. Moving on then to our regular show pre-starter, which is our big picks from the small screen. And it's a pick of two or three things that we've watched outside of the two films in review that has kept us entertained. And we love to start with our guest. So Claire, what have you been watching during lockdown? Or have you had time to actually sit and enjoy anything? I watch more or less a film a night. Nice. I watched Drifting Clouds by Karis Mackey last night. I watched Lost Highway the night before that. I watched La Havre and a Nick Cage film the night before that. So I have a wide variety of films that I watched. I also went through all the Star Wars from having watched Mandalorian. I then watched uh -huh. the whole thing. So I, I can't live without watching films. So I am, you know, 
I'm at it every night almost. Any highlights from watching the Star Wars saga? Did you watch the prequels as well? Yes, I I have to say it was kind of depressing. (laughs) (laughs) One is, you know, even if you find that they're not the greatest films ever, the action sequences are just so remarkable. And to see them on the TV screen is really Mm. disappointing. I, I think... The George Lucas ones are my favourites, I I have to say. Um, Mm -hmm. But I thought The Mandalorian was so stunning. Just an amazing series and made me want to see all the Star Wars again. So, uh, But I'm afraid Ewan McGregor doesn't do it for me. No, he's quite stilted. (laughs) I don't think it's entirely his fault because I think Lucas just really didn't know. He was more interested in composing the shots rather than actually directing his actors. And it's the weird false beard that he has. it's terrible. In the second one, it's just, it looks like somebody's just grabbed some fluff off the floor (laughs) and put some glue (laughs) glue on his face and just thrown it at him. It looks even worse in 4K. And Jar Jar Binks was definitely oh, yeah. a mistake. <laughs> I can thoroughly recommend that people check out Charismaki films and La Havre and Drifting Clouds are amazing. I'm a big fan of that sort of Finnish humour, which is unlike anything else. And they're so beautiful to look at and they're such wonderful soundtracks. So. Yeah, if you want something a bit different, Charismaki's your man. Amazing. Solid recommendation. That's great. Thank you so much. Hammond, what have you watched? Because we've all missed you. Oh, bless you. So I need to cheat a little bit. So I've got a bit of a list and then I'm going to go into what I actually watched. Get the bell ready. I'm sorry, mate. No, it's going to be quick. (laughs) Don't ding the bell. Don't ding the bell. It's broken. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So as, as you all know, massive, massive documentary fan. So I've caught up on lots. I've watched Made You Look, a true story about fake art on Netflix. Thoroughly recommend it. It's excellent. What's My Name, Muhammad Ali on Sky Documentaries. Absolutely outstanding. Framing Britney Spears, which is just heartbreaking. Makes you hate the paparazzi in the press more than you've ever hated the paparazzi in the press. And Rain Man Twins on Amazon Prime. I've also watched that. They're my four docs. So I'm going to move on to my actual list. So first of all, I watched I Care A Lot with Rosamund Pike being a total badass. Really? Absolutely hated oh, it. Why? I thought it was the laziest bit of filmmaking I've ever seen, just to be <laughs> controversial. And it was so bad that after an hour I turned it off. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> why is it I, I don't think it was lazy at all. What was what was wrong with it? I think the narration is the a bit plotting. I thought the plotting and the script was it was event cinema. So it had sort of scenes, but it logically didn't stand up at all as a script. It's a piece of entertainment entertainment in my mm-hmm. view not a film fair enough Come <laughs> <Not> then ben <laughs> no it's fine in in my notes i do have i think it should have been called i vape a lot because for some reason there's, there's this weird amount of focus on her vaping all the way through the movie mm. i thought it was original to have a film where there's no hero it's just packed full of bastards being bastards and that sings to me that that really makes my heart happy so i liked it but for, for the sake of my career claire i completely agree it was it was, it was awful <laughs> I, agree. <laughs> I agree with you hammond i think rosamund pike did an amazing job as a, a despisable character and you still kind mm. of root for her even though she's an absolute villain yeah yeah it was good kept me entertained earned it off (laughs) 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 so following that i watched 21 so i love gambling and i love vegas so with that in mind i 
did love this film. But With Kevin Spacey. Yeah, so it's problematic now. So it's it's a Weinstein-produced movie, and at the centre of that story has got Kevin Spacey essentially grooming college boys in a movie that was almost entirely whitewashed. So I've read the book called Bringing Down the House, and it was a group of Asian students from IT that did this, but for the sake of Hollywood, it's now very pretty young white Americans. So problematic. But lots of gorgeous shots of Vegas and lots of gambling and lots of things that also make me happy. You love it. I do love it. And then I fancied a nice, healthy whack of 90s nostalgia. And this hit the spot. And I went back to Point Break. Oh, now that we can agree. (laughs) Surfing, skydiving, bank robberies, Top Gun-esque homoeroticism. Yes, please. Loved every minute of this. And I really enjoyed a little glimpse back to Point Break. So... That's my official list for this week. Is Point Break a genuinely good film? Because yes. I think, yes. do people love it because yes. it's a bit hammy and a bit cheesy, like like sort of Top Gun? Because the script is awful. It's cheese. It is cheese. It's got, it's got Keanu Reeves firing a gun into the air and <laughs> shouting. I mean, <laughs> like... Yeah, I mean, it looks amazing. Catherine Bigelow, it, that, that, like, the cinematography is incredible. The surfing, the action set pieces are all amazing but the dialogue is so stock 90s police rubbish great isn't it <laughs> she made that into the into the film that it ultimately became made yeah. it into a great film i think I because she's such a good director yeah, yeah i think that's right she's a really good director and anything with keanu reeves in it i'm there yeah yeah anything. No, and he has made some real clunkers <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so that's me. Cool. So I watched, I haven't got a list. I'm just going to do my three because if you look back at the episodes now, my reputation for lists <laughs> is dwaning. I don't really do them very often anyway. Everybody else is picking up the mantle of that. So I watched a documentary on Netflix called Iron Fists and Kung Fu Kicks, which is an hour and a half doc about the history of martial arts films and how the martial arts sort of became prevalent in not just Hong Kong-based kung fu movies that became part of the mainstream. And it's a great, great documentary gave me a list of martial arts movies from the 70s and 80s that I hadn't seen, surprisingly, even though I've seen a lot. So that was a, it was an interesting watch if you like that type of movie. I watched, again, it was a retro thing. They, it was on Sky. It was a nice transfer. They put in there for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. As you guys know, I'm a very much a Richard Dreyfuss and Steven Spielberg fan. I love that movie. For me, it stands up to repeat, repeat, repeat viewing. So yeah, I watched that. And finally, a thing called The Terror, 10-part fictional based on a, on a book about two ships in the 1800s that go looking for the Northwest Passage around Canada to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And they get frozen in, but there's uh, a sort of supernatural element to it with this beast that seems to be stalking them but it's also about the mental instability of the crews as they get stuck there for a number of years as opposed to weeks or months it's a really intense really really dark and unyielding program at all there's no redemption as such but it's so compelling to watch beautifully shot and the performances were fantastic yeah so the terror I've heard other people recommend that. It's one I really want to get yeah. to. It sounds fantastic, Paul. Yeah, I will warn you that it is very bleak. But <laughs> I really, like bleak. Yeah, really compelling. <laughs> so I, I would definitely recommend giving it a go. It's about you know 50 minutes an episode. There are 10 episodes. Really worth watching. I heard that um, Close Encounters of the Fur Kind 4K transfer is insane. So yeah, I do really want to watch it again. It looks really, really pretty. And yeah. it's, it's Spielberg's version of the film that he wanted to see. So it's got a couple of extra elements added in. And then the awful CGI bit of inside the ship that was added <laughs> in a, a later that taken out. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that existed. Okay, nice. Yeah. So I caught up with David Finch's Mank from 2020. Breen, I've got to 
hard disagree with you here, man. I hated it. Really? I love that film. <laughs> I'm with you. I thought it was an overblown piece of rubbish. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> we all know Hollywood loves a good navel gaze. I mean, award season is in full swing and we'll talk about this later, but it's leading the nominations and the Oscars. Anything that propels the mythos of like the golden age of celluloid is like catnip for Academy voters. They love that shit. They can't get enough of it. <laughs> I honestly <laughs> thought Fincher, who is here like fully back into Benjamin Button technical filmmaking mode, was better than this. Like Alban does a fantastic job like with a script which is more concerned with appearing clever than giving you any sense of character or feeling the slavish way it attempts to recreate the period is marvelous but i just feel if you're if you're admiring the film because it's put together in a really technical coherent way then you're probably not invested in the narrative pretentious oscars clickbait is Ooh. what i wrote on their words <laughs> <laughs> style over content yeah definitely yeah. Style, style over substance definitely but as i say I, I i really enjoyed it from that perspective alone yeah but yeah, maybe that that does sort of speak truer to the actual film itself. But I think it looked beautiful, and it was very reminiscent and nostalgic of that of that era. Yeah, you can see that in a VW ad, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's the episode quote. <laughs> you can see that in a VW ad. Yeah, I no, I didn't like it, I, and the way the sound design was put together to make it sound boomy and echoey just just made me want to change the settings on my soundbar. It, it was annoying. Uh, yeah, I hated it. Tell you what I didn't hate, though, The Act of Killing, a documentary which I should have seen when it came out. Finally got around to watching it. Amazing. Absolutely astounding. What a hard watch. Um, If you Mm. want to see the dark side of human nature accompanied by full-on psychopathic behaviour, then, like, you've come to the right place with this documentary. It's on full display here. Just the banal and remorseless way that the perpetrators talk about the atrocities they committed is just just unreal it's it almost feels just surreal to watch and all the costumes and props just sort of add to that if there's something i i kind of was missing from the documentaries i wanted to explore how it came together like getting on the production meetings like where do they get the studio from why is someone dressed in a woman's dress why are they putting sort of prosthetics on their faces but i mean either way it's essential viewing uh, an incredible incredible groundbreaking documentary yeah dogwood for just kicking it out though i mean they did uh, 76 days which we reviewed on the last pod but they really seem to know how to pick a good documentary and, and yeah put it out there yeah i think it's worth going through all the dog wolf catalog because they have just such amazing films and very good taste yeah, yeah. for sure let's all go to the lobby 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 get so moving on into our box office refund and Ben Mercer is going to bring us what there is of the movie news from around the world. Okay, so the biggest news agenda today is obviously the Oscar nominations for 2021. The delayed Oscars due to the COVID pandemic have released a variety of nominations for films, some of which I, I have absolutely no idea about because a lot of it due to the, the pandemic is content that we haven't actually seen yet in the UK. Things like Judas and the Black Messiah, although that was just released on VOD. Nomadland, of course, is coming out on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Minuri, I don't know if we even have a release date for that yet in the UK. Claire will probably know. Well, I have to say, all these films that you haven't seen, I've been lucky enough to see. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I, I know, all brilliant. Some are better than others. Very diplomatic answer. (laughs) I mean, I won't go through all the nominations, but what I will say is that the it's the first time two women have been nominated for best director ever. Uh, Minari's Yu Jeon Yul and Steven Yeun became the first actors born in Korea to get nominations. Judas and the Black Messiah represents the first time an all-black producing lineup have been nominated for best picture. It's interesting to talk about all these inclusive choices because this morning the Golden Globes were issued an ultimatum by a hundred PR firms that uh, refused to send talent to the awards unless they 
implemented change and now they're going to try and increase their membership to have at least 13% made up of black journalists. But yeah, what do people think about these nominations? I actually, I think they're pretty good this year and I think it's interesting. We haven't had things like Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story would probably be in there. I think the Five Bloods was maybe snubbed. One Night in Miami as well is notable for not being there. But generally speaking, I think it's a really good lineup of, of um, actresses, actors and, and uh, films. I mean, you, you're right in that I think it's a much more inclusive lineup, which is a real positive. I would say, though, that to me, the choices for best film, it's always a bit, you know, you have your own personal favourites and others that you don't think so much of. I, I think it's a fair list. Mm. I wouldn't say it's an outstanding year. I would say there's a few in there that are really terrific and there's other others in there that are just sort of in my book also ran. But it's been a funny year overall, um, to be honest with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just say one thing though, that the two films that I really stand out for me are The Father yeah and mm-hmm. promising young woman both of which i haven't seen <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know when we get to get to see them uh well you will hopefully yeah. promising young woman's going to be released in june and the father i think is june july oh nice right amazing very good Cool. Disney's new animated feature, Raya and the Last Dragon, received a modest boost at the weekend by opening in three new markets, Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong, and Croatia, while also achieving some strongholds. It's globally now up to $52 million worldwide, which again, during a pandemic is actually pretty good. And it's also available on the premium strand of Disney Plus. So yeah, I really can't wait to actually see that, but I am not going to pay Disney extra money for that. Um, Amen, brother. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) AMC have said two of its biggest LA locations are to open for business as of this week. AMC's 23 remaining Los Angeles County cinemas will be ready to reopen on March 19th with 25% capacity, reserved seating, and at least six feet of distance in all directions between any groups. This combined with the recent news of New York cinemas reopening with limited capacity is a hopeful sign that movie dates will start to stick. What do we think with that? It's wonderful. It's such, such good news. I mean, you can see the shift in share prices across all entertainment companies. It's wonderful. It's great that things are getting box office releases and generating box office revenue. It's hopefully from here on in, it's just all positive stuff. Yeah, definitely. And you can see the confidence in the UK market with bonds being pulled forward, as we covered on the last pod. I think it's it's Mm. encouraging that things are going to stick. But I don't know. I just I still feel that Black Widow is maybe just a bit too soon. And I am still fully expecting that to slide just a little. Yes, that klaxon sound is chiming once again, which can mean only one thing, that some last minute hot exhibition gossip has broken and we must jump back into the virtual pod booth to break apart said broken news. Cineworld and Warner Brothers have reached a multi-year deal to show the studio's films in the US and UK. Cineworld, who own and operate Regal Cinemas in the US and Warner Brothers, have hatched a multi-year agreement that will see the number two global exhibitor show the studio's 2021 theatrical and HBO Max day and date titles in the US. Then, beginning in 2022, Warner Brothers theatrical films will have a 45-day window of exclusivity at Cineworld's Regal chain. This all comes off the back of further news that Cineworld has set to reopen its Regal cinemas in the US for the first time in six months. The phased process will start with a limited number of cinema locations opening for Godzilla vs. Kong on April 2nd, and then more locations will open on April 16th in time for New Line's Mortal Kombat film, which is, as we know, another Warner Brothers studio picture. This is huge news. 
Cineworld CEO Muki Gredinger has long been adamant that theatrical window remain 90 days of exclusivity. Even as recently as July last year in reaction to AMC's Universal PVOD deal, he was quoted as saying, this is the wrong move at the wrong time. Clearly, we are not changing our policy with regards to showing only movies that are respecting the theatrical window. This is, yeah, this is big. This is huge. First of all, welcome yeah. to the 21st century. The exhibition window is great. It needed to be addressed. I think this deal between Warners and Cineworld changes the face of exhibition from this point going forward. I think certain cinemas open in April 2nd with the rest opening up. Uh, what was the date? April 16th in time for Mortal Kombat. It's fantastic. As Mookie said, 75% of the Cineworld estate sits in the US. So with that reopening mid-April, it's it's fantastic news for, for mainland Europe. Yeah, great. Very, very exciting. Very big day for us. Yeah, definitely. As the cinema industry always has done when it's been threatened by another format whether it be video television whatever it adapts and survives it's a, a beast that won't die because it ultimately changes for Mookie Groding to actually back off from what was a, a very vitriolic statement last year that's a big change of heart but I think it's a realistic change of heart in understanding what the industry is going to look like going forward it, it mm. was inevitable it was going to come at some point and the pandemic has just brought that into a starker focus in a much quicker time frame it means cinemas will continue to exist the theatrical window is preserved albeit smaller uh, than it used to be and it just means that customers are going to get to experience those big films on a big screen. It's a great announcement. It's great news. Just on the window, I mean, I think 45 days. I mean, if, if anyone wants to watch something at home, fine. 45 days is long enough for people that want to watch it in a cinema to watch it in a cinema. It might seem short compared to the traditional 16 weeks, whatever we were dealing with before. But a 45-day window, I think, is still is still plenty enough, and I don't think it would damage the cinema industry one little bit. People will want big screen spectacle. They will want social interaction. They want to sit in an auditorium watching things as they're meant to be watched. And yeah, 45 days is, is, is fantastic, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, we all work in the industry. We all manage cinemas. Who is honestly saying that we're still getting absolute wall-to-wall sold-out shows for films that are 45 days into the run? You know, we're down to main eves, maybe early mats, and we're still seeing a sort of 30% to 50% take-up. But it's definitely not you know, 100% sold out 45 day run even for big films like Star Wars you do just because of the number of showings and the number of cinemas mm. that are showing it it's everywhere so if people want to watch it gone are the days that you turn up to the cinema and go oh it's sold out and then you go away and then come back in a week like people will just go to where there were available seats and by the time yeah. you get to that that 30 days to 45 days you know there's people coming back to watch it a second third time yeah, and exactly you know, yeah. we're not selling out and there's also, I mean, this year and well, will be next year now. The, the amount, of the backlog of feature films to come out means there's going to be a huge release pretty much every week. So mm. the likelihood of a film still playing thirty to forty-five days later is pretty much zero because there are so many other films that have got to come in to take those, you know, the limited number of uh, screening slots. With this deal in place with Warner's and Cineworld, AMC and Cinemark have got their deal with Universal. Do you think that this is going to be the norm now that forty-five days will be the new? theatrical window for all exhibitors the two main players in the world you know the two largest exhibitors uh, on the planet agreeing very similar deals with different studios it mm. can't not be the norm going forward uh, if, if if that's what the main players are, are agreeing then that's what will become the standard do you think this opens the window to cinema exhibitors like odeon and cineworld potentially showing netflix which traditionally have a 30-day window I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting one because obviously we've, to a certain extent, a couple of films, Roma being one of the perfect examples uh, of a film that uh, some cinema chains 
refused to show. I think it was only Curzon, I think, that screened it, wasn't it? Um, mm. Because they were part involved in the in the production costs of it. Suffered as a result. There were a lot of customers that wanted to see that on a big screen, but because it was a Netflix only, you know, it went immediately to Netflix. None of the cinemas, cinema chains were screening it. So I think, again, there'll be a rethink. Netflix were very big with their huge one big release a week uh, announcement at the beginning of the year and some of the big big films that they've got coming onto their platform really deserve to be I mean it may not necessarily be the best films in the world but they're films that would look much better on a big screen whilst not all their films are great Hoobie Halloween or whatever that shit was called <laughs> if you look at the Oscar nominations they've broken the record this year for one single studio with the most Oscar nominations ever on record yeah. so you know these prestigious directors are doing deals with Netflix because they have that creative freedom and it's a shame yeah. that they wouldn't be shown on in cinemas mm, definitely I think let's not run before we can walk but I think the deal with Warners and Cineworld and the AMC deal it, it certainly paves the way for things like Amazon Studios and Netflix Studios to be able to get their stuff in the cinemas and seen on a big screen whether that's day and date or whether there's a similar theatrical window I guess we'll see but it's I think it's very very exciting for the future finally this confirms that HBO Max's day and date release strategy that I think people were potentially concerned that if it had been really successful, that would stretch on into 2022-2023. But this categorically states that it is just for this year and that next year, mm -hmm. Regal will get that 45 days of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Really good news. Yeah. We will now segue seamlessly back into the regular scheduled podcast. And finally, another sort of piece of bad news. The Texas-based movie theatre chain Alamo Drafthouse has announced that they have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy as part of a purchase agreement. This means that the company will actually stay open, but they will be closing sites that are unprofitable. It's interesting that we haven't really seen much of that happen in the UK yet, touch wood. Obviously, the big three have remained in place due to reshuffling their finances and getting fresh investment. But smaller chains like Curzon, Everyman, they're all hanging on in there, which is which is great. Curzon just announced a new opening in Camden, which looks yeah. which looks spectacular in the new railway arches um, down by the market. So it's great that companies like Picture House with Finsbury Park opening soon, Curzon opening Camden. There is still appetite and it seems to be more appetite for boutique cinema versus multiplex, which is, yeah. which is wonderful news. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's great. And that is the news. Think of Warder Street and you think of films. Moving on then to our guest interview section, it's time to turn the spotlight onto a lady you've already heard from. This week is Claire Binns. With 40 years experience in the cinema industry, Claire has held many roles and has sat on many committees, including BAFTA. Claire is the recipient of several awards and honours within the industry. A woman in film and television award, Variety named her one of the top 25 people driving the London entertainment scene, and she is listed in the Guardian Film Power 100 list. She is currently the Joint Managing Director of Picture House Cinemas. Thanks so much for coming on today, really appreciate appreciate it. Let's start with a, I think it's a nice intro question. So what started your love of film? And do you remember the first film you saw and which cinema you actually saw it in? Well, I actually think that part of the reasons that I love film is that I'm very, very dyslexic. So although I read a lot, when I was younger, I think going to the cinema and visual things were what turned me on. So I've always been a complete cinema nut from the first time I started watching films. But I think that the moment where it changed a bit for me was I'd been to see all the Disney stuff when I was a little 
girl, but I went to see The Lady Vanishes, the Hitchcock film, 1938, Margaret Lockwood. And I went to see that at a building that no longer exists. It was the Flora Robson Playhouse. And they had a screen. It was a theatre and they had a screen. And I went to see that. And that made me think, this is a, a kind of cinema that's very different. It's not disnified it's not childish there's something here and I was actually probably only eight or nine when I went to see it but it, it really changed things and the other film that changed things for me dramatically was seeing West Side Story which again I was born in 1954 and that came out in 61 and I think I went to see it when probably it was in rep or I had a cinema down the road from me literally probably about 200 yards away from my home and it used to show films not on date because only certain cinemas could show them on date so They'd often have double bills. They'd have films that were six weeks later than they were playing elsewhere. And I took myself off to see West Side Story. And I think I saw it about three times in the week. Mm. I wanted to copy all the dancing on the film. (laughs) I mean, nobody saw me, which was a good thing because I couldn't really dance very well. But I think those two films just made me realise the scope of cinema and what it could be and... I was just hooked. Amazing. Fantastic. Two pretty damn good choices to get you in, definitely. (laughs) For the benefit of our listeners, could you just give us a bit of a sort of summary of your career in cinemas and and what your current role as a managing director entails? Well, I I mean, a lot of people have heard this before, but I started as an usher at the Ripsey Cinema in Brixton. I was probably about 20-ish and I literally got the job so I could watch films. And that was the reason that I did the job. And so I worked front of house about six years, but I became a projectionist. I became a manager. Of course, I criticised the films that were being chosen by the person that was programming the cinema at the time. So I thought, well, I want to do this. Why are they playing this rubbish? They should be playing this instead. And, uh, and eventually I wheedled myself into the position of booking the cinema. And I then started to realise it was a little bit more difficult being on the other side. Because I think when you're in a cinema, you often think, why are these decisions being made? And when you start to do the jobs yourself, you realise it's perhaps a little bit more than than you see from when you're standing there thinking, why why is this going on? As to what I do now, I mean, I guess that it's a big job and it's a job that has amazing benefits and amazing thrills and, I, I you know, the privileges of doing what I do, I, I really do appreciate every day. But a lot of it also is having to make decisions that can be quite tough. The buck stops with me. Uh, I'm there to grow the business. I'm there to support the team. I'm there to have a vision of what I want the company to be and to bring people along with me with that vision. 
And then it's sort of boring things as well, you know, making sure that we've got the right fridges, making sure that the (laughs) ticket prices are all aligned. And, And I can't say that any day is the same. And when I wake up every morning, I'm still as excited to do my job as I was when I went into the Ritzy 40 odd years ago, because it's all about watching films and it's all about the cinemas having the kind of range of films, the ethos of people being able to come in and have a great evening is what has always been my driving force for why I do the job. So is there anything that's a particularly sort of challenging aspect of your or your current role? I mean, COVID obviously is looming large in everybody's life, but is there anything that's particularly challenging that maybe you didn't think would be? Well, COVID has been fairly challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's overriding Uh, everything at the moment, I know. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought when when this happened, we were having our best beginning of the year that we'd had for Mm -hmm. about four years, and we were absolutely flying. So there's always challenges. And I think the challenges of the way that the business is changing so fast, you know, the big change that took place from when I first started in cinema was that digital came in and we went from 35 mil to digital. Since digital has come in, it has been amazing in what you can now do and and what audiences can see and how they can see it. And all of that is amazing. But at the same time, the speed of change and the speed of what audiences want and demand. And and, and I think one aspect is that people think now everything should be free. And so, you know, what you have to remember is that people that make films, they have to be paid for making those films. And those films uh, in order to keep those great films in cinema, there, there has to be things are not free. You know, people that power it or download or, or think that music should be free, people's livelihoods depend on it. And I think it's important to recognise that people should be paid for content. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. So quite a heavy question. But uh, as as a woman in the industry, do you experience any prejudice at all? And how have you dealt with it? Massively in the early days. And I was always a, a sort of lone woman in roomfuls of men. And it was quite difficult, challenging. I worked with Lynn Golby, who started Picture House, and she had the same difficulties raising finance, not being taken seriously as a woman. I have faced a lot of challenges. And I think, you know, for Picture House Entertainment, our distribution arm, we've got a particular a particular role to play in picking up films directed by women. Things are changing and diversity is something that is changing very fast at the moment and and the way that audiences want to see themselves represented on screen rather than it just being you know white middle-class blokes or blokes and I think that that's fantastic. I feel now that things are much better than they were but 20 years ago for me it was difficult and it was challenging and to be taken seriously and to have your company taken seriously 
but fortunately, it's never stopped me. Knowing you, Claire, with your personality, you don't strike me as a person that won't stand up and speak her mind. Exactly, exactly, yes. I've always done it. You've been involved in a lot in your time in cinemas. So what's your most rock and roll story that you can tell us that you've experienced? I've thought about this one. And my answer to that is I don't think people want to hear about those things because in a way that's the privilege you know it's very nice and I've met a lot of people and had lots of wonderful experiences but I think that yes there's some sort of people I've met along the way that have been for me personally I've I've been shaking with excitement you know but meeting Werner Herzog, meeting, you know, Warren Beatty, people like that has been a real thrill for me. A lot of it is about getting those people into our cinemas. So the reason I'm meeting those people often is because we want those people to be there for the people that work at the cinemas, for the people that come to the cinemas. So when we did Lost in London with Woody Harrelson, that was about getting him and his film into our cinemas. It was about him going around. It was about having conversations with him about doing that. Same with John Boyega, you know, getting him to come down to the first Star Wars that he was in, coming down to the Ritzy and coming on stage for the people as a surprise. So persuading him to do that. It's it's always for me about sharing it. So there are certain thrills for me, and, and some of those thrills are with people that may mean nothing. I mean, meeting Kia Dula from 2001 was a huge thrill for me, but for a lot of people, you know, he, he's only been in a few films. So it's more, uh, although I will tell you one thing, when we released a film, L, directed by Paul Verhoeven, starring Isabel Hubert, two of my most favourite people, and sitting at a dinner table with them was just pretty awesome. Fantastic. Great answer. So feel free, you don't have to answer this question at all, and it's a real (laughs) name drop question. But uh, who's the most famous film star in your phone book? (laughs) Well, as I said, all of them are, I, I don't have a lot of, but I know I can get hold of people if I need to. <laughs> and to be nice. honest with you, you know, the, the people that are most influential is not the people that are in the films, but it's the producers and the directors that you want the phone numbers of. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah definitely actually brilliant so we like to ask all our guests this question and it's definitely a controversial one for some people what is your favorite guilty pleasure one film that is commonly derided by critics and audiences but you absolutely love it okay well i've seen this film five times when it was released and it got one star by peter bradshaw <laughs> in the guardian and it's mamma mia oh and that again you know we talk about audiences and I love watching audiences and the fact that I saw this film five times I saw it in America I saw it in Cornwall I saw it in London I saw it in god somewhere else really weird but I saw it five times when it was out wow and watching the audiences who fucking loved it (laughs) i've said it now who you know they just went out of that cinema walking on air Mm. and that to me is 
just as much fun as watching the film. And I, you know, what's not to like about the film? It's ABBA music, love ABBA music, love Meryl Street. Yeah. Director's great. You know, what's not to like? Pierce Brosnan singing. singing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What a voice. I'm not sure that's, that's a general consensus. <laughs> well, you see, you see, it is controversial. Yeah, no, but, definitely. Uh, that's a good very pick. True. When it actually got down to the nitty gritty, it was a piece of cake. I'd, I think I'd exhausted my nerves. I think I'd run the course with all the possibilities of what could go wrong. And in the end, I just threw myself into it. When you're gone, when you're gone how can I even try to go Moving on then to our regular feature, which is our in-review section. Two films this week picked by Breen. Tell us your picks and tell us your thoughts. Okay, so let's go with the elephant in the room. The CGI elephant. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So the first of the two picks, which we couldn't not review because it was one of Amazon's big push releases. So it's the sequel to Coming to America, Coming to America. You must heed my words before I'm gone, my son. Now, you will be king. But the throne must pass to a male heir. Hakim, it appears you have a son. He must be found. Prepare the royal jet. We are going back to America. Oh, hell no, your majesty. Directed by Craig Brewer, starring Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, so the usual crowd back again. Plot is the African monarch Akeem learns he has a long-lost son in the United States and must return to America to meet his unexpected heir and build a relationship with this son. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I had such a great time with this. It genuinely made me laugh a lot. Were you drunk? (laughs) No. Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall were great together again, as they were back in 1988. I love the 88 version. It's a film from my childhood. I watched it over and over. And I love that they kept shouting back the Mighty Sharp Barbershop, Randy Watson with the band Sexual Chocolate, Reverend Brand, all fantastic gags. And I'm glad that they've stuck around and come back. All the characters from 33 years ago still had such good chemistry, even though most of them are Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. But that's probably why it just works so much. So what you doing back here, idiot, I mean? I've just discovered that I may have a son here in this land. How much child support is she getting from? The king pays no child support. No child support for 30 years and you came back? You's a dummy! (laughs) (laughs) So my main gripe with this is Tracy Morgan, and it's the same gripe I've got with everything he's in. He's fucking useless, and we could just do without him shouting his way through everything he's in from start to finish. Hard disagree. As always, he is surplus to requirements. Hard disagree. Um, I love it. Really? I, I I, I really like his particular brand of comedy, which is just shouting things at random. I don't know why, because I don't like it with other comedians, but for some reason he just, in Faye Rock, I love his character, and he's basically just doing exactly the same thing his comedians in cars getting coffee episode is like one of my favorite i just i really 
I have a lot of time for him. And he, to be honest, he's not in it that much. So if they overdone it, maybe I would have been a bit more annoyed. Yeah, sorry, mate. Oh, it, it felt like they overdid it. I know he wasn't in it much and it was too much. There was no absolutely zero need for his character in this mm. film. But that being said, I fucking love this film. I laughed my ass off from start to finish. Get it watched. I am the polar opposite. I, I, I love the original. I think it's a fantastic film. It had charm. It had wit. It had laugh out loud moments in it. And say all those characters that Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall played were exceptional. Those points in this film were great. It was nice to see those characters again, but they were very, you know, they were hardly anything more than cameos. I mean, it, 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 I don't know why they called it Coming to America because they were hardly in America. It should have been called Cameo to America. Cameo, right? exactly. exactly. <laughs> cameo to America. It was absolutely terrible. It was, everything was so forced and I just genuinely don't understand why. It, it, just, it why? Just, because there was just the sequence at the beginning with the, the, the funeral thing with his Here's on Vogue. Mm. Here's Beverly Knight. And we've rewritten some lyrics and tried to make a pun out of it, but of these famous songs. But it was truly, truly awful. I was cringed through it. The, I mean, Eddie Murphy and Arsino weren't in the film enough. They, mm. they had more cameo roles, and it was focusing on this possibly you know this supposed love story. But but everything was so crowbarred in. It was just. It made me cringe. It made me embarrassed for them that they <laughs> that they thought that this was acceptable an acceptable sequel to what was a great great movie. Mm. Uh, I just I can't understand why. I mean, obviously, art is completely subjective, and everyone has a different experience. But I genuinely mm. don't understand how and how you can have enjoyed it that much. It was so funny. It was so so funny. Okay, I, oh, I, it was the light in the darkness we are currently surrounded by. It was fucking great. Did you not laugh at all, Paul? Uh, I like to say when they when they did go to America, the the barbershop scene they're always great because those characters are so well created oh, and they they do stand them. the test of time and the, the the banter that they have works. It just it feels off the cuff. Those really worked. But uh, overall, the film, God, I just sat there. Please make me laugh. Please do something funny <laughs> because I, I, I there's nothing there and I want I really want to like this film. I really genuinely wanted to really love this movie. And when we we watched the the Bill and Ted movie and we felt that level of nostalgia and it, it made us feel like we were watching the original films. Mm. This did not do that at all at any point in the film. It was just, I thought it was, it was shockingly bad. I really did. Like I'm, I'm dead in the middle of the <laughs> two of you because I, I think it was interesting when you read the plot. I think the plot should have read more like when the producers of Coming to America 2 realised they had a very sizable Rolodex and saw that everyone was available on their calendars. They then went about getting everyone involved with this film because the script isn't so much as written as just, why is the camera lingering on this person? Is, is that someone famous as well? Yeah, it was absolutely ridiculous. You'll get to the point where Zamunda is next to a country called Nextoria, and if that joke works for you, then you're fine. You're good to go. Look, Hammond's loving it. See, that's why he had such a good time. Yeah. He, he it's found that, great. that opening joke like absolutely amazing. I will say, Wesley Snipes, who is back with Eddie Murphy to team up with the makers of Dolomite Is My Name and Eddie Murphy yet again. Like Wesley Snipes is having an amazing time in this. General Izzy, what a totally unexpected surprise. King Akeem. I have come to give you congratulations for locating one of your lost spell. I too wonder about my own stray bullets. <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. Ah, but I've not come with just words. I came with a gift for your new prince. With your permission, King Akim, 
My permission is granted. I did really enjoy his general, even though some of the jokes about <laughs> supplying weapons to children was just like a bit borderline. And I think that's it. But there are some things in this where the film takes a line to say, no, that's not acceptable. But case in point, like the barbershop scene, it was absolutely fine for them to say, look, don't make any jokes about starving African children with like flies in their eyes. But if it's a transphobic joke, absolutely go for break. Go for it. Oh, it was. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit of a mixed bag. But do you know what? Like, I, I laughed. I, I really found it quite funny. The bit where Arsenio Hall, when he the, the briefcase opens up when like he's going, no, I don't need any money. And then like this briefcase of money just opens out on the floor. I've come back for my son. Zamunda, Wakanda, Connecticut. I don't know where you're from, Zach. but I've been forcing this boy's life since he was born. I'm Lavelle Johnson. All right. I don't need no handout. Hey, yo, uh, you know, I'm thinking, who am I? to say no to becoming a prince. I burst out laughing. Brilliant. Like There are very, very funny bits in this film. And I'm, like from start to finish, I was definitely giggling all the way through. I love the shout out to the Dukes as well, returning again from the far yep. superior trading places, in, in my opinion. But do you yeah. know, I, I'm someone who doesn't have an affinity for coming to America, the original. Like I only watched it this week. I watched it two days before I watched the sequel. And I think it's a good film. I don't think it's amazing. As I said, I prefer Trading Places. I think some of the stuff in the original film maybe hasn't dated so well. I'm really not a fan of Eddie Murphy and um, and all sort of playing different characters. Being brought up with Eddie Murphy, doing all these films like Norbit and you know Doctor Doolittle, I've seen him play lots of different characters anyway. So that for me wasn't fresh. And I guess if I'd watched it at the time, I would have gone, oh, look, it's Eddie Murphy playing lots of different characters. So I, yeah, that didn't work for me at all. But yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's hard. It was it was it was harmless fun, and I did laugh. So it's like a, a three out of five for me. Fantastic. So the second pick is on Netflix, and it's a new release called The White Tiger. When I first saw him, I knew then this was the master for me. I want to be a driver for your son. Hey, how much rope? Hey, don't do that. <laughs> hey, driver. I'm Pinky, nice to meet you. Balram, have you ever seen a computer? We had many of them in the village with the goats. Okay, the goats are pretty advanced to use computer. Okay, now you're being a jerk. I didn't like the way he had spoken about me. Since I was a boy, the desire to be a servant yeah! had been hammered into my skull. Directed by Ramin Baharani, starring Adash Gurav. The plot revolves around an ambitious Indian driver who uses his wit and cunning to try and escape from poverty and rise to the top. It's an epic journey based on the New York Times bestseller. What do we think of this? I really like this. I thought it was a very strong film. I think it was visually very, very striking. The cinematographer on this was Paolo Canera, who's done stuff on the Gomorrah TV series. And it had a very slick, almost... I really hate using this film as a touchstone for literally every podcast. But again, The Social Network. There was a, a, a very sort of slick... <laughs> cool electronic score and style to this. I thought the lead was absolutely fantastic. I thought he did an amazing job following the narrative of someone who's made some very deplorable choices, but you see why they're being made. He explains it. Yeah, I thought it was great. The only thing I would say is, as I said multiple times on, on films like this, there is a lot of narration in this. And I do think sometimes narration is there as a just a, a shorthand, like as a sort of scapegoat to just say, look, let's put this exposition here. Let's tell the audience what the character's feeling as opposed to showing them through like a strong narrative. And it's framed as a, an email he's sending a Chinese businessman. Like it's a cold call email that he's sending them. If I was sending that email, like I would have stopped reading after the first paragraph. There's far <laughs> too much content there. But yeah, it's a very good film. And I was surprised. I don't know why, but I, I didn't really know anything about this film going into it. It looked stunning and it was a very, yeah, it was a very good story. 
I thought it was great. When I finished watching it, I thought I'd just watched the first two hours of Indian Scarface with taxis instead of cocaine. It was brilliant. <laughs> That's a good shout, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I loved how this looked and felt. I adored how the protagonist Balram narrated the story. It was engaging. At times it was darkly comic and it felt like a real expose into the world of corruption and politics and the caste system in modern day India. Like he didn't seem to pull any punches in terms of this shit is still happening and people need to understand this. The next morning, Mr. Ashok did something he had never done. Who is this? He gave me a day off. Your nephew? Yes, sir. My family. Okay, sir. But by now I knew the rich never give anything for free. He had found my replacement. The movie showed in painful detail the juxtaposition between the haves and the have-nots. The hotel scene in Delhi was sickening, where his masters are in the in the luxury suite and he's down in a cockroach-infested car park. And that's just what the servants do and that's where they go. I thought the lead was exceptional, seamlessly switching between naive servant who was unaware that you shouldn't scratch your nuts while serving tea to a lady to slick business magnate seemingly at the top of the tree. But just following the lead of his masters, he got where he got because he gave a sack full of cash to the police commissioner. Mm. And that's just how, how things work, how you grease the wheels. I, I thought the use of music was exceptional in this. At the start, you've got the very traditional Indian folk music. Then it moves into the more upbeat Bhangra type music. Yep. And then right, right at the end, you've got the kind of Jay-Z mashups. It's almost like yep. the music is bringing you through the timescale. A really great watch. Really, really enjoyed this from start to finish. Just echoing what you guys have said earlier, it was a, a fantastic piece of work. The central performance, as you said, exceptional there were there were moments when he he uses his smile as a mask you know the scenes when he's particularly being put down verbally by you know his his masters but still having to keep a smile on his face and just that quintessential grin and bear it thing but particularly you know some of the things that were being said about him and his family and absolutely atrocious uh, mm-hmm. but if this forced smile but you could then see also behind the eyes the the calculating that he was doing and the learnings he was taking from all of this and and how he was then going to use that later on to to move himself up i would not let him tell me my fate was a shack in a slum over the next weeks, I learned the ways drivers cheat their masters. Number one, give your master phony invoices for repairs that are not necessary. Two, sell your master's petrol to other drivers. As you gain confidence, cruise around picking up and dropping off paying customers. Delhi has many pickup points. Over time, you will learn them all. When I looked at that cash, I didn't feel guilt. I felt rage. It was really interesting insight into the caste system in India. I don't, I've never seen it portrayed in that way before. And like I said, Hammonds it didn't really pull its punches at all. It was it was very open and honest about about that and the the massive class distinction that there is within the caste system. And beautifully shot. I, I think yeah, you're right. The voiceover was too much. That was a bit contrived. That in terms of framing the whole film, I didn't didn't need it. You could you know get through without it. And I think mm. the, the 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 supporting performances were fantastic as well. There, there wasn't a sort of weak link in there that sort of pulled you out of the narrative and pulled you out of the story and the world that they created. And and yeah, a fantastic movie really really glad that uh, we've had a chance to sit down and watch it hey hey kids how would you like to hear this on the street instead of the great show you came to see honest honest please cooperate and do your part in keeping this theater quiet and enjoy some adults and kids to paid admission to enjoy the show remember how you see this 
Super. Right, moving on then to our regular feature number two, which is our review spin-off questions. And this week, inspired by The White Tiger, what, in your opinion, is the best film of a rags-to-riches story? I've got two absolute bangers for this one, just in case anyone stole one from me. So I'm glad I'm going first. Uh, and it's a movie that, uh, Mercer, you've already mentioned. And it's the 80s hit Trading Places from 1983. One of my favorite rags to riches stories. You've already said, I've got it in my notes. Uh, I love that when Lavelle in Coming to America was being interviewed, he was at Duke and Duke, which was great. Um, if you remember Trading Places and you haven't seen it for a while, give it a rewatch. And if you've never seen it, you can't go wrong. It's great. It's a story of a snobby investor and a streetwise con artist finding their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires. It's Billy Ray's vase, right? I own this vase, and I can play like Harlem Globe trying to shit with it, right? Okay, you want Mellow Lemon shit, right? <laughs> Man, I'm sorry about that. Perfectly all right, William. It was your vase. Man, that was a fake, right? I think we paid $35,000 for it. But I seem to remember we estimated its value at $50,000 for the insurance company. You see, Mortimer, William has already made us a profit of $15,000. <laughs> you want me to break something else? No. Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, solid gold. It's brilliant. That's my choice. Yeah. Excellent choice. So my choice is from 1979, directed by Carl Reiner. It's a Steve Martin movie called The Jerk. I adore this movie. It's from peak Steve Martin, wild and crazy guy period. It was his first foray into feature films. Um, it was written specifically for him. And it just works from start to finish. Just the story of a, a guy that through his basically naivety and innocence just lucks into creating a fortune, which ultimately then sort of gets lost. It's Funny from start to finish, it's heartwarming, it's touching. There's a beautiful love story in there. Bernadette Peters plays the love interest in it. She's wonderful. And it's just laugh out loud funny from start to finish. And it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. So yeah, The Jerk from 1979. So I'm going for The Hudsucker Proxy from 1994, the Coen brothers. Tim nice. Robbins plays Noville Barnes, a fresh-faced business graduate who finds himself going from mailroom clerk to CEO overnight at Hudsucker Industries in a move intended to give the disgruntled board controlling interest in the company. The plan massively backfires when Robin's character invents the hula hoop, you know, for the kids, <laughs> which is a massive success. It's essentially the Cohen's take on It's a Wonderful Life. There are themes of corruption, bringing in the new year, and there's even an angel appearing before Robin's character to offer advice. It's a charming little film, and it's often overlooked in the sort of Cohen's back catalogue, but Robin's is incredible. It's such a funny film. You know, for kids. It has economy, simplicity, low production costs, potential for mass appeal, and all that spells out great profitability. I had the boys down at R&D throw together this little prototype so that our discussion here could have some focus, and to give you gentlemen of the board a first-hand look at just how exciting this gizmo is. It's fun, it's healthy, it's good exercise, but the great part is we don't have to charge an arm and a leg. What the hell is it? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, brilliant! Just exactly what Hudsucker industry needs at this juncture. It's got a bit of a, an ode to old Hollywood kind of flair going through the film. It feels very old-fashioned in its sort of time period. So yeah, I really like that film. So yeah, the Hudsucker Proxy from the Coen Brothers. All right, moving on into our in-scene question. As Eddie Murphy is saying, he's already got an idea for Coming to America 3. Coming 3 oh, America? I'm sure you're 
very excited about that, Breen. Which film in a long-running franchise do you feel was the one that jumped the shark? Now, I think we need to explain what jumped the shark is. Breen, what, where's that phrase come from? So remember the TV series Happy Days with the Fonz? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it was the most highly rated TV show in America at the time. And there was a, an episode as it was moving on. They'd been on for some time. And they decided, to, they did an episode where the Fonz jumped over a shark that was in a cage on a jet ski. <laughs> and the rating, because they were just trying to improve the ratings again, and they were trying to do this, and it, yeah. and it just went down downhill from there. But the, the thing that came from that was the phrase, jump the shark. So w- what it means is the point at which they went too far with something, where mm. it, they, they tried to move something on, but actually where they should have left it from just before that point. So mine actually <laughs> involves an actual shark. Oh, wow. It's, it's Jaws 3D. So the original Jaws, as you all know, it, Jaws is my my favourite film of all time. Jaws 2, I mean, Roy Scheider didn't actually really want to do it, but to get out of a contract that he had with Warner Brothers at the time, he agreed to do the movie. It's not that bad. It's actually it's actually quite a good movie. Jaws 3D, however, uh, it should have stopped at 2. Jaws 3D was originally pitched as a spoof film that was going to be a bit like Airplane, where they were going to do something stupid with it but then some studio execs decided to, to go no actually we're going to make this a serious film and we're going to do it in 3d none of the original cast involved they got a production designer from the first two films to direct it who's that's the only thing i think he's ever directed dennis quaid plays the lead in it and he's not in the film hardly enough and it's truly terrible uh, the shark this this shark which is 10 feet longer than any of the sharks in the previous mm. two films which makes it almost a whale gets shut into a, an aquatic park a slug sea world park and 3d bloody nonsense ensues hello out there due to technical difficulties it has become necessary for us to temporarily close the undersea kingdom now for those of y'all who are still in the underwater portion of this park follow your guides and they will point out the the most convenient and accessible exits. Where the hell is the nearest successful exit? We're underwater! Is this off? Uh-huh. Give me some lights down there! I got them right here. Get some shit down Burn there! It. And get me some medical attention here, quick! Daddy, Daddy, look at the fish! Oh, Holy shit! It's an absolutely pointless, awful, awful film. They should have stopped at two because there, there, there was a legacy there that worked and it, it rounded everything off nicely. And mm. they're saying, there's no returning characters at all. It's just an appalling film from start to finish. And then and then they they didn't learn their lesson. Jaws 4, The Revenge. I was going to say, I'm surprised you didn't pick that. The 3D is the way which they actually jumped the shark. They should have stopped at two and that's it and just left it. So the memory of that and the, the legacy of that was suspended in time forevermore. Okay, so my pick for this is going to be 2015's Terminator Genesis, directed by Game of Thrones' <laughs> Alan Taylor. Genesis. This is the fifth entry in the Terminator franchise and the third reboot after the failure of 2003's Rise of the Machines and 2009's Terminator Salvation. Even the film's existence is a cynical cash grab. The studio had obtained the rights to the franchise in an auction after the production company behind Salvation went into bankruptcy, which resulted in the new rights holders having about seven years to produce two to three Terminator films before the rights reverted back to James Cameron. I mean, where do you even start with this? Maybe the name? Genesis? I couldn't even... I was writing it out for like from memory and I put the Y in the wrong place. Why the fuck is there a Y in Terminator Genesis. 
What? Can you guys spell it? <laughs> no, no, they want Genesis, but were they, were they? I don't know. Were they trying to be clever by you know like some people replace a C with a K to make it fun, try and make it cool? Is that what they were trying to do with the word Genesis? Stupid. Maybe they're trying to combine the word like Genesis and system. Maybe the plot is so convoluted and exists purely to retcon the two films in the franchise that work. So that's the first and second Terminator films. There are three time jumps in the film. It seems that every time the characters arrive in a new time period, they quickly just hop into a time machine and go to another period. Skynet knew it was losing, so it tried to rig the game. It sent a Terminator back to the time before the war. Then who's the target? My mother, Derek Connor. We can use the technology ourselves. Send someone no, back. I don't even know if that'll work. I'll go back. Why should I send you? You know why. Everything you've told me about her, I know her, John. No weapons? We've measured the magnetic field. It'll rip apart anything not encased in living tissue. Think tinfoil in a microwave, times a few billion. Nothing left but a crater. It's purely there to just set up a series of sequels that never happened. So yeah, Terminator Genesis, Genesis. Fucking hell. <laughs> what a piece of shit. Uh, Salvation and Genesis underperformed at the box office. So yeah, there, there is. And even Dark Fate actually didn't really do that well either. People don't want these films. Stop making them, guys. So for my choice, think back to 2009. Do you remember what smashed the box office? Transformers, Revenge of the oh, Fallen, God. Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince. The Twilight Saga, New Moon. I'm not talking about any of those. I am, for my actual answer, attempting to preempt a franchise that needs to jump the shark. Am I using that phrase correctly? I'm not sure. I am, of course, going to talk about Avatar. Ooh. Wow. I did not buy into the hype of the first one. I watched it on its opening night at a huge cineplex in Toronto. I was in a packed screen full of, to the brim, of very exciting people who left even more excited than when they went in, and that didn't help me. I've had a few rewatches, and apart from James Cameron's ego and bank balance, who wins here? There are four more of these slated up until 2028. At what point does this need to jump the shark? I'm saying now, stop. Just stop. <laughs> Okay. Thoughts. <laughs> the problem for, with Cameron he, is that he's he's more interested in spectacle than dialogue. And Titanic suffered for, for me with this, and I think I agree. Avatar suffered with this as well. He was very interested, obviously, because he created the three D technology for this film. So it was a very different experience watching it in three D than you'd watched in any previous three D beforehand, and that's great. Mm -hmm. So new technology, and obviously, he's very much invested in in that as part of the storytelling. But the problem is his stories. It's too long. The Avatar is far too long uh, for the story mm -hmm. that it's telling. And once you've seen those beautiful vistas in 3D several times and lots of things floating in front of you, okay, we've got that now. Can we now, mm -hmm. let's focus on character, let's focus on story. And that's where it fell down. I'm just saying, in seven years' time, nobody is going to be sitting there going, fuck yeah, Avatar 5 comes out next week. <laughs> nobody. No, no. Nobody. No. You're absolutely right, Breen. But spectacle isn't enough anymore. You can't just have spectacle. As like the Russo brothers uh, Endgame and Infinity will prove that you've got potentially 2D characters fleshed out. You've not only got these massive battles that look epic, you've got the character beats of that franchise. It's an incredible combination of storytelling and and spectacle cameron scripts have always been awful first of all avatar is basically a remake of pocahontas slash fern gully that like <laughs> yeah. Beat, yeah. Yeah. but with what with blue aliens and 
he's got this real pendant for like stock bullshit military dialogue. Well, looky here, meals on wheels. Like, <laughs> yeah. just stay frosty. Stay, yeah, exactly. Just stock bullshit dialogue and characters. So where's the appetite? I mean, Avatar, which we're just talking right now, Avatar has now retaken the crown as the biggest, biggest box office of all time. So clearly there's, a, with a re-release in China, so clearly there is an appetite for this still. People do want these films to come out. But yeah, by the time we get to the fourth or fifth one, Hammond, you're absolutely right. God, I'm, I'm not even looking forward to a second one. Now, talking about disappointing rewatches. Aladdin, Brian Zombie, it's just nonsense. Four, 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 five, five, Some dude got stuck with a sword. Love the music. Totally amazing. Three, my final one Ubi Halloween please avoid this god awful piece of shit why would you watch it you know it's gonna be shit have you liked anything you've watched brilliant so that is everything all it is for me to do is tell you what we are reviewing on episode 14 so first up I've got a brand new film for us you excited about this? Oh, yeah. Wow. It's released on March 20th, and it is the Nick Moran-directed biopic of Alan McGee, who founded Creation Records, and it's called Creation Stories. Oh, amazing. Alan McGee, of course, championed acts such as Oasis, Libertines, Primal Scream, to name a few. That's on Sky Cinema slash Now TV. And my second choice is a documentary, because as you heard earlier, I'm going through a real documentary fix at the moment. This won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2019, and I can't believe I've not seen it. And it's American Factory, which is set in post-industrial Ohio, where a Chinese billionaire opens a factory in an abandoned GM plant, hiring 2,000 Americans. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America. Now my two choices. And that does bring us almost to the end. But what I do have to do is pose a question, hopefully slightly more difficult than Breen's question last week. At least it got us some responses. <laughs> so with nominations released and the ceremony fast approaching us, I have an Oscars-related question for you this week. And the question is, at the 1994 awards, how many Oscars did Schindler's List win? And for a bonus point, how is that coincidental to the film? So there we go. That does bring us to the end. That is all from me. Thank you to Claire for joining us. Thanks, Paul, Ben. Sorry I had a week off, but I'm back. And I'm glad to be back. And uh, yeah, it's down to you guys to sign off. Well, I have to say it's been really nice. I'm very sorry my camera wasn't working. I'd put on a clean T-shirt. <laughs> um, so, uh, quite disappointing that uh, you weren't able to see it oh. anyway i think you're doing an amazing job uh, i really like it and i love hearing people talking about movies it's um it's why we all do it exactly right we're doing our best thank you so much for your time claire really appreciate it cool yes as always everybody thank you so much for listening uh please be good if you can't be good be careful and uh yeah just stay safe and healthy out there hopefully you're all getting your jabs in your arms and uh, we can look forward to seeing everybody hopefully sooner rather than later thank you so much for making it this far on the pod if you want to catch up with us on our social channels please feel free to do so so on facebook and instagram that's forward slash seeing this pod scene spelled s-c-e-n-e and on twitter we are forward slash seeing this underscore pod we also have an email address as well seeing this pod at gmail.com please drop me a line i'm very lonely and i want people to talk to <laughs> amazing we'll see you on the next episode you have been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and myself, Ben Mercer. The main theme is the Godzilla theme tune, remixed by myself, with beats supplied by Lander. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the pod and please check us out on Facebook and Instagram forward slash seen this pod, seen spelled S-C-E-N-E. All views and opinions are those of their hosts. Reserved seating and at least six feet of distance in all directions between any groups. Those Americans, they love the imperial system, don't they? I don't know what that is in meters. <laughs> what, what is that in meters? Is that two meters? Uh, six feet is 1.83 meters. Yeah. 1.8. <laughs> Bloody youngs. <laughs> <laughs>